You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 195 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, my guest is author Alex Renton. Apart from having an awesome first name, Alex is a campaigning journalist specializing in poverty, development, the environment, food culture and food policy around the world. Alex has also won awards for investigative journalism, war reporting and food writing. As a child, Alex went to a boarding school and as did many other children, he suffered a lot of abuse. He wrote about this in his book, Stiff Upper Lip. Before we get into my discussion with Alex, let's hear a short bit from the documentary The Secret Shame that he made about all this. Boarding schools are amongst the most influential institutions in Britain, responsible for educating many of our politicians, judges and business leaders, even three quarters of our prime ministers. An estimated million people in the country boarded as children, but it's only now, decades on, that the true extent of sexual abuse in these schools is coming to light. I could smell the abuse because abuse has a smell that is a particular smell that you will only know if you've been abused. At eight years old, I was assaulted by a paedophile teacher myself. My name is Alex Renton. I'm an investigative journalist and I'm trying to find out how much the schools knew about what was going on behind their doors. I've had people say to me, oh, come on, a little bit of fumbling around. You can't blame your problems on that. Well, that's poisonous claptrap. It's like having a, a toxin inside you, isn't it? I meet survivors, speaking openly for the first time, and ask what went wrong in so many of these institutions. There would have been a scandal, but it seems that being a duty of care, the responsible person at that school was him. Were schools really willing to disregard children's safety to protect reputations? And how did they get away with it? I think he kind of slipped justice. He got off light, you know, he got off light. It's just bloody scandalous, really. I meet the families still devastated by the impact of sexual abuse. If I could turn the clock back, I would never send him away. And most importantly, I want to know, are children in boarding schools today safe? In terms of the grooming, the school was complicit. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Alex. So can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and uh, what you do? Yes, I'm a British uh, journalist and author. I, uh, um, I've worked most of my career in newspapers doing investigative uh, articles and, um, and I worked a bit as a conflict and a crisis reporter as well. I worked for Oxfam for a while. Um, and uh, about four years ago, for various reasons, I had decided I needed to look at my own childhood and uh, my education. Um, 
mainly because people who had been at school with me uh, had got together to report to the police some of the crimes that were committed against us at one of uh, Britain's very famous traditional boarding schools, or two of them actually. And, uh, and that made me begin to question a bit about what my, my culture, the, the rich, um, the rich uh, upper class British culture, what it had done to me and indeed generations of people before us um, in order to prepare us to go out and rule the world in the British way. And so that brought me to a, a series of investigative articles, uh, mainly about, about abuse of children in these contexts and, the, and then to a book and, and a film that was broadcast earlier this year. So does that mean that you yourself come from the upper class if you could go to one of those boarding schools? Uh, I, you don't have to, uh, um, but but my my history, yes, very much so. I, I mean, I, I on my mother's family's side, there's eleven generations of boarding boarding school children going back to the 18th century, and on my father's side, rather less, only four. But um, but we were are very much part of the British ruling class. I mean, and my father was a conservative MP and Lord underneath. Margaret Thatcher, and my mother's family were generals and governors and admirals and they and slave owners in in uh, the Caribbean and uh, uh, high-ranking politicians in the 19th century in India and the British colonies. Um, so yes, I mean we come from a a, a, a small minority that is extraordinarily has held on to power in Britain for 250 years, um, probably the, lo the longest unchanged oligarchy that the world, modern world knows. Did your father, uh, I guess it's only the men, I'm not sure, but did your father suffer abuse as well? Do you know, I think he, I think he may have done. I, I mean, one of the, the things about this class and this culture is you don't talk about these things. You, you, keep, these, you keep a stiff upper lip. And you keep these things secret. But but my father, who's now um, sadly very old and has dementia, but but some things he's let slip over the years makes me think that, yes, he, he probably was abused. But, but also, of course, Alex, there's a question of how you define abuse. Uh, I mean, I believe that the act of separating children from love and uh, and comfort and safety at the age of six or seven or eight, which is what this system did, that in of itself was an abuse. I mean, that that I think most psychologists would now agree that is potentially very traumatic for, for the developing child. Um, the fact that there was physical and sexual abuse as well at these places is, is, is if you like, you know, another element to it. But I think we were we were neglected children. We were privileged, neglected children who sent away, as I say, from love very early in our lives. Because I find it strange that, I mean, I'm sure you're not going to send your children to a similar school. I mean, how you could, if you've gone through it, how can you do it again? Uh, well, that's what's extraordinary. And, and, and I think, you know, I, as I said, I look back at it. I have some accounts from the 19th century of, of my ancestors and their experiences at school. One of them tried to burn his school down in 1890 and, and went, was sent to jail for doing so. But, but the, the class again and again 
decided to repeat the experience. And I see this, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of people who have been in contact with me about their own experiences at these schools that that very often the the parent who suffered would send their children to suffer as well. And I think there are two things going on here. One is that key in this sort of northern European notion of child upbringing that pertained in the 19th and 20th century was that suffering was a good thing, that children, uh, and this comes out of Christian beliefs as well, children are, are born evil and that they must suffer pain in order to become morally upright adults. Uh, that's one issue. The other is, is more plain psychological uh, psychological trait, which is that which is what's known, known as normalization. That if you one way of dealing with trauma is to normalize it, is to say that it, it it's as it should be. So what, the easiest way of normalizing the traumas you suffered at school as a child is to say they were so good for me and so right and correct that my own children will have the same thing. I mean, there there are boarding schools all over the world, but most countries don't have it. It's not as common as in England. I mean, it's maybe they even invented it. I'm not sure. But could you just for the listeners just give a quick rundown of what actually is, is a boarding school and how it works? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, they are all all over the world, particularly in those countries like India, Canada, Australia, South Africa, which were. Uh, British colonies, um, because clearly, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, a lot of nations, you know, looked at you know, when Britain was the ascendant imperial power, looked and said, well, how do you produce a class that can then run an enormous empire? And the boarding schools, because they existed, were were the obvious model. So you get you get copycat schools even now across the world run on the British system, and indeed. Uh, Schools in Britain, you know, 30% of their children are rich, rich people from rich children from abroad who are sent for the British style of boarding school, because that will make them leaders, supposedly. Um, so a boarding school, um, I mean, they come, it comes out of sort of 18th century Britain, really, where uh, because of charitable acts, you know, in, in the earlier in, in the millennium, Uh, a number of excellent schools like Eton, Winchester and so on, St. Paul's, uh, were set up across the country. And the uh, aristocracy or the ruling class um, got into the habit of sending their children from generally you know, their rural their rural homes, the, the castles or whatever they lived in, to board at these schools because that was where the best education could happen. So... Uh, the only alternative would be that you would have a, 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 you know, a tutor hired to to educate the child within the walls of the family home. But this was better because not least you know, a wider range of education, you imagine, but also because of the connections that you that the child would make and would in, enable him to cut, become part of the ruling class. And as early as the 18th century, when the British Empire is sort of coming to its height, uh, you see almost every extraordinary the numbers prime minister leading politician leading uh, armed forces person admirals explorers generals and so on went usually to Eton I mean to the one school so it was not surprising when Britain became very wealthy in the 19th century that the aspiring middle classes said right we must have this for our children as well the children must go away and board and 
and and until fairly recently that meant literally being sent away often as young as six or even younger to a preparatory school which would prepare you for the the great public schools um public of course isn't public it's private which is one of those those deliberately confusing things that that british culture likes to do um and um so a a fashion if you like and and you know a method of spending money to make your child to push your child into the ruling class appeared and and it, it, it and so many many more skills schools were built and funded to to feed to satisfy this desire and most of the sort of great schools people see in the movies of britain with their gothic architecture are actually 19th century inventions uh, made to copy the older ones but what you then get is a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy where an industry arises because parents see if i spend this money and send away the child to have its spirit broken perhaps very early to suffer then uh, in 10 years time i'll get back um someone who will take the family name forward and make us all rich and powerful that was a rather complex explanation i wondered if you wanted something more 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 practical about how boarding schools work well uh, yeah that also uh, how, you know that they, they live there from what age to when well nowadays so the system you know which has changed a bit since i mean i'm uh, in my 50s i mean changed a bit since i was a child but it's pretty much the same is that children will grow up you know, you know as as normal children in the middle class anywhere in europe until seven or eight and then they will be sent off to uh these schools um uh and told they're leaving home i mean this is the beginning of their adulthood and they will usually uh sleep at sleep and live at the school um full time for the whole term i.e. two and a half months um some schools do a bit of part-time boarding as well and you can go home at weekends but the the traditional system is you 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 have a a hard break from family life and you start and you you join school life where you eat sleep and work with with people your own age in this very rigorous organized system very little spare time lots of sport lots of um lots of lessons and so on and and that goes on to 13 these are the prep schools and then at 13 like in most systems you graduate to a secondary school which if everything goes right you will have been prepared to to enter one of the great public schools the Eton's and the Winchester's and the Fettes and the Marlborough colleges um where a similar thing will pertain you you go home for for 40% of the year for the holidays but but you your life becomes that of the school and the effect even today is is to is to break children off from family quite effectively i think and make them bond with the people of of their class within the school uh, often the schools remain many of the schools remain a single sex so that has other effects as well in terms of bonding and, and also in possibly in in, in promoting um uh misunderstanding about the other sex or the other gender though about 30 40% of the children are girls the majority are still boys it's ironic because 
the rich people or the upper class, they're the ones who can afford to actually spend more time with their children. Yes, there is an irony there. Um, and and let's be, be also, you've mentioned what you can afford. I mean, the money that it requires is extraordinary. I mean, it's up to £40,000 today. So you're spending half a million pounds, which is what, three quarters of a million euros to educate your, ch your child over, over 10 years. Um, and yes, so often the people with more leisure are the who could look after their children are the ones who use boarding schools. But then equally, boarding schools often get used and they've been subsidised over the centuries by, by, by people who are in the British foreign foreign corps, the, the ambassadors class and so on, and in, in, in the army who, who, because they're working abroad, cannot uh, educate their children themselves or keep them at home or at least that's the excuse they make and so they, they send them off to schools but I mean you certainly see nowadays in Britain boarding schools which are still very healthy I mean their number, numbers aren't declining and haven't for, for some years um, used by super busy parents parents whose careers say I just don't have time you know I'm, children I must have but, but looking after them is not something that, that I have time to do I must go and make money or more money it must have spilled over into the public schools in England because uh, if I compare it to where I live and in other countries, it's still quite boarding schoolish in the normal public school where you have the uniforms and you maybe call the teacher sir or something like that and it's you line up in a line and they make sure you are... It's, it's very militarized, uh, the normal English public school, I think, compared to my experience where I've grown up. No, I think that's right. I mean, I mean, I think what you know what's interesting in British history is, is that I mean, because these were the first organised schools in in Britain, uh, they became the model for all schools. And even when um, at the end of the nineteenth century, full state education for for everybody uh, arrived, that even even the poorest schools for the most ordinary people were organised along the same lines with classes and uniforms and rituals and and discipline that was deliberately copied from these ancient and quite strange institutions. And, and to an extent, that was then copied across the world because there was certainly a, a, a time when Britain led mainstream thinking in how you educate children. Um, so, yeah, the, the the rigors of the system remain very similar. I, I, I mean, I, I mean, I'm sitting in Edinburgh, where I live, which is full of private schools that you, know, you can see a lot of the 19th century things are going on there. But there is one very key difference, uh, especially when we come to people, children being unhappy, is that if you can go home in the, however rigorous and ritualized your school is, if you can go home in the evenings and tell someone who loves you what's worrying you, that's very different from if you only see your parents every three months, as we did. You know, you are you can get very lost and very very badly traumatized quite quickly if if you are if as a child you feel trapped in an environment with no place of safety or no no safe adult in whom to tell your problems to so is there a lot of bullying and and what if there is uh what who are the bullied i guess it's not the ones who are good in school maybe or... do you know it's interesting alex this morning in 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 the british newspapers there's a 
big uh, uh, big story about a famous uh, ancient school called Millfield, a boarding school, where uh, a mother who literally her son started three weeks ago and last week she took him out because he he sent her recordings of the licensed ritualized bullying that he and the other 13 year olds who just arrived were going through and this was them the older boys taking them into a room stripping them naked and hitting them with belts and cricket bats um the thing the modern thing is that he could record it on his phone and tell his mother what was going on but this is exactly the same ritualized permitted bullying as, as a sort of a hazing or a initiation ritual that was going on in the schools when I was there and in the 19th century. So the important thing to learn from that is, A, you, nowadays this mother removed her child, which in the old days, uh, what happened to me and many others is we were told actually the bullying was good for you, that this was part of what should happen to you, that you needed to suffer and learn your place and that a little violence would help you do it. And so the bullying like that was and is permitted as part of the discipline system and the initiation system by the adults who run the schools. It's, it's weird how it works because, I mean, do, do, do the teachers, like, train someone to be a bully or something? I mean, how does it evolve naturally that it just happens? Children are perfectly capable of training each other, don't you think? I, I, no, I mean, I think what... I mean, again, this is in, and also you should say you know, these are the bad cases. I would would not say that you know this is rife throughout the entire system. Uh, I mean, it, it was when I was at school. I think less so now, but it, there's still potential for it. And and uh, I think the origins of it. I mean, if you remember great you know British uh, stories like Tom Brown's School Days, one of the best-selling books in. Britain in the 19th century, which, you know, which is a book about a child who, who, you know, loved his time at rugby school, a, a famous place where they invented rugby, um, which still exists. But, but, but the bullying was appalling. And, you know, one of literature's great characters, Flashman, the bully who used to hold the small boys up to the fire and toast them, uh, you know, it remains a, a sort of comic, comic figure that people actually like. So, What's what's sort of intriguing is that is that the British have always laughed about the ritualized humiliation and bullying within these schools in a way that 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 sort of approves of it as well and says you know this is a part of life and a part of growing up and children need to go through it. Um, so our our attitudes to it have, have I mean I you know I think a lot of children who read those books arrived at school expecting to be bullied in this way and. And looking forward to the time when they grew up a bit and they could become the bullies instead of the bullied. That was one of life's life's rewards. The sexual abuse that happens, is that uh, amongst the students or is it from the, the staff? Well, I, I think, I mean, again, I mean, I think, you know, need to separate when I was a child and today. I mean, I think I, I, I know things are better regulated now. What, what was, but then equally, the people who run run Britain today and also run many of the schools came through this this era where sexual abuse was was tolerated in the schools. Um, and I think I mean there are you, you know there are obviously two kinds. There's a, there are the sexual abuse of adults, the, the paid, the staff, the teachers on the children, and this sexual abuse of the children, which may be part of 
part of the bullying systems and the and the um, rituals uh, and, and all those things happened and and I'm afraid probably still do happen I mean and again you're back to a place where if children have no right of appeal or safety or, or place of refuge then then these things are all possible but I mean for a start if you Kate if you put adolescents together in a in a, a total society which is closed off from the rest of the world like a prison um and uh in a situation where 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 I mean young particularly young young adolescent males are can be very highly sexed and if if there are no clear rules about against predation on other children then it will inevitably happen in any society not just a boarding school what was extraordinary at uh in the schools that I that I attended and, and the, the many that I've looked at as a journalist is just to what extent the sexual abuse by teachers was tolerated and tolerated not just by the staff, but also by parents. That, that's very strange. <laughs> it's really shocking, isn't it? I, and, and I think, you know, I think of all the research I've come across, you know, uh, the, num the number of provable incidents where parents told that their child was being sexually abused, said, I don't want to know about this, or that's what happens. And and um, we when we interviewed a uh, policewoman for my TV film um, earlier this year, uh, who'd tried to lead an investigation into a notorious prep school, prep boarding school called Sherburn um, in Southwest England, and, and had been, and her and her officers had been repelled by the, by by the parents when they asked the parents permit the parents permission to interview the children who they suspected were victims of the headmaster's sexual abuse and one of the parents said to her look I don't want to know anything about this and I don't want you bothering my son all I care about is that he gets into Eton so do you think when these uh, top politicians and The, uh, the the rulers of the country when they meet or when they're about to hire somebody is that part of their recruitment like which school did you oh you didn't go to a boarding school then you're not interested then I'm not interested in you know making business with you or is it is it very important in, in that I, well I, I think I, I don't think anyone would dare say that overtly nowadays but but clearly Uh, connections and a sense of sh shared culture and experience in, in the, those bring influence and power in, in all developed societies uh, whether it's that's worse in Britain than than elsewhere in comparable countries I don't know all I do know is that it is really bad in Britain I mean that that the ruling class is still very much dependent on on those those not secret but those hidden connections in for the way it forms its its power groupings and uh, the way it 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 hands out influence and and um and jobs um the the i mean it, it the the school the traditional boarding schools still dominate british politics i mean, I mean it people when boris johnson our notorious foreign minister who went to my school but went to two of my schools he's two years younger than me um i, I knew him um was sacked finally from uh theresa may's um conservative cabinet a few weeks ago um it, someone pointed out this was the first time there had not been an old Etonian in a conservative governing ministry um 
since the 1830s. So the schools, particularly for the Conservative Party here, are, are still incredibly powerful, incredibly dominant, which explains why there's, there has been so, where attempts to reform them has, have um, failed again and again. So it's very normal for someone that's abused to become an abuser. That's like almost standard. It's very hard to break the circle, which makes it very interesting, this topic, because if the abused are ruling the country or the world, then they're not going to, they're going to abuse the population. Yes. I, I mean, I, I think, you know, there, there, is, there is something in that. I mean, I, I suspect it's more complex. I, I mean, there are um, psychologists, psychotherapists that like Nick Duffel, who, who've spent an entire career looking at uh, helping um, exporting school children and looking at the effects on wider society. And I think the point he would make, which, which I would agree with, is that one of the complex effects of, of early childhood trauma, whether it's through sexual abuse or just the neglect we've talked about, is, is that you can end up very separated from your feelings. Uh, you, wanna, you can end up a person who is very tough on the exterior, um, very, very you know, aggressive uh, and very and lacking in empathy. Um, and certainly those can be useful qualities for someone who has to go out and rule other human beings. And, and to put and certainly Nick and, and a lot of other people have, have put together uh, what they see as the, the conservative um, attitudes in you know, or the right wing attitudes in Britain towards people who are poor or to immigrants or to people who deserve help um, as directly deriving from the fact that these rulers had uh, fellow feeling for human beings knocked out of them early on at boarding school. Um, because because one of the effects of dealing with the abuse is to develop a tough exterior where where you 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 are um, uh, contemptuous of um, of human suffering and human frailty and and you you don't allow it to affect you. But I you know, I think yeah maybe there's a bit of that. I think it's certainly true that you know when you were breeding British you know young British men to go out and rule parts of India and Pakistan and so on um, you, you know that those desensitized men were probably better at the jobs than the, the job in terms of in straight budgetary terms than than properly formed human beings um, it's a nasty picture though I could more understand it if it was on like a college level, like when you're finished your normal school, when you're 18, you go three, four years for at a boarding college. But then you're like old enough to be able to, at le- you, I mean, at least you can uh, pr- protect yourself more, you know. But I'm thinking about that movie, The Dead Poets Society, if you've seen it. Which is a boarding school and the teachers are a bit stuck up, and but it's... Seem- I mean, there's some drama in the film, but it still looks like a nice school. It's just that the teachers are a bit stuck up, but, you know, that's it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and, and it would be wrong to say, you know, that all the schools are the same. And, and, and of course, people, there are some people who went through the schools who certainly believed they had an entirely productive and, and good time and it made them into good adults. Um, but I think, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, 
I mean, going going away to school at 16 or, or, or later may be a very sensible thing to do. Right? It's a good, possibly a good time to start to separate a bit from family bonds. Going at six, seven or eight years old is just insane, really. And the the I mean, and it's interesting that no society except Britain has ever done it on any large scale. Actually, actually, the only other, well, sorry, I, that's wrong. There are two other societies who have done it. And one was the Soviet Union in the late 1950s. And Khrushchev announced he was starting a system of boarding schools for Soviet children. And that was specifically because he said we can't, they were worried about westernization of youth and rock and roll and arriving uh, and so on. And, and Khrushchev said that we they could no longer trust Soviet parents to bring up their children in a proper Soviet way. So by the early 1960s, three million Soviet children were at boarding school. And the other place where it's happened um, is um, in China, where at the moment uh, apparently 30 million children are boarding because China in the early 2000s closed down um, a lot of rural schools on, on economic grounds. But... Um, before then, <laughs> only the British decided that this was a good way to bring a child, bring a child up. And um, in Germany, um, I've been told there's virtually no boarding at all. It's only for, for people with special educational needs. That's when, when it happens. So most of these children who are abused, they wind up sending their own children to a boarding school and that. But how did you manage to break your own circle? Yes. Well, it's, you know, I'm really quite pleased about that. <laughs> I think, how did I break my own sex? No, absolutely, because as I told you, 11, 11 generations of my family before me did it. I, 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 how did I break it? I don't know. I think I was, you know, I mean, I was less, you know, I, I emerged from the schools a very angry young man. And I, and I was, uh, you know, mainly because of my abuse. And, and I had uh, emerged with no trust at all in my, in in the rules and systems of my parents generation or indeed the class that they belong to and I, and I uh, you know I've mellowed a bit since then but I but, but I can uh, so I had no problem at all rejecting the notion I could see my education had been a disaster um, it left me uh, fairly well educated but but it, emotionally and some of the the traumas that I'd had 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 damaged me quite seriously and I, I knew that but now I mean I, I have a wife who did not go through this system she thinks it's ridiculous I think if I had ever suggested to her our children should pack their bags at eight years old and disappear uh, she would have thrown me out and quite rightly um, but it's not dying I mean a Brit for Britain it's a huge export industry still. I mean, we, I mean, we, the schools here in Edinburgh, like Fetis, have 30% foreign children boarding, often only going home once a year. And they're largely Russian children and Chinese children and so on. So, so there's still, while the British have begun to see what a lunacy this is, perhaps, um, or they can't afford it, at, as I said, 60,000 euros a year. Um, the, there's still a peop, rich people around the world still want children to go and board and grow up to be British British style leaders. You can hear me laughing. So this book you've written, where can people get it? And uh, and uh, do you have a website? Uh, that's very kind. Um, well, I have a website uh, which is alexrenton.com, and that has a link to the book's website um, where there's quite a lot of material and reviews and. And also stuff to uh, 
um, support material for people who who um, are seeking to address the traumas they suffered at these sort of schools when they were children. And and that's called stiffupperlipbook.com. Uh, but you can find it from alexrenton.com. And the book is available, um, Stiff Upper Lip, uh, what's it called? <laughs> Sorry, Stiff Upper Lip, uh, Cri- Secrets, Crime and Crimes and the Schooling of a Ruling Class is available from all um, good um, bookstores and downloadable places and on Kindle. I don't want to plug Amazon very much here, but it is on Kindle on special offer at the moment. But um, uh, it's pretty generally available. It's in paperback now. Um, if you write to me, I'll send you a signed copy. Cool. Thank you a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thank you very much, Alex. I enjoyed our discussion and good good luck with your work. Go to alexrenton.com to check out his book, Stiff Upper Lip, and also his other work. I think it's very interesting that perhaps the lack of empathy amongst the oligarchy of the world, those in power, is all due to their suffering in these upper-class boarding schools. At least that is my theory. Uh, And yet again we see that love is the cure for all problems. Also my theory. Because if every child was loved and cared for, every single one, I wonder then how, how big the difference would be in terms of the level of corrupt politicians, abuse of power, war and all that that we would see, I suspect we would see much less of it. Okay, let's change the topic and listen to another episode of the little mini-series The Great Mindfuck with Alexandro. In this one we put the fun in funeral. Check out hermeticvision.com if you want to learn more about Andro. So hi, Alex here, and I'm with Andrew. How are you doing? Mm, horrible. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm doing fine, like relatively speaking. So I wanted to put the fun back in funeral or funeral, and uh, most people in the Western world, when they attend a funeral, uh, they have all these rituals, and uh, if you look into all these rituals, they're all based in fear. And many indigenous communities, uh, they uh, when somebody dies, they have a party, and it's more a positive experience. But in the West, it's it's a very negative experience, and like uh, usually, like ring the bells to scare off evil spirits. Uh, uh, to uh, uh, have these certain flowers they use is because the smell scares away demons and uh, and. Uh, black clothes and uh, the you know this whole thing with the coffin and you know uh, some people cr- uh, cremate themselves these days but it's still quite common to to lie in a coffin like you know the body must be sustained somehow and uh, they spend thousands of dollars on on this coffin and um, i want to see what you think about all this with uh, with funerals because personally 
I think when you die, what I really want is to be chopped up and fed to animals, but that's not allowed. So the next best best thing is to just scatter the ashes in the wind. Okay, uh, I'm all for a good, decent Viking funeral. I mean, uh, you live in Viking land, I'm, and I'm a Viking at heart. So, uh, yeah, uh, the, the shamanic way, given the regulations, uh, would be to have oneself burned. And uh, it also gives us the extra advantage that uh, after we die, we, we, we won't have a corpse to want to, like, repossess in the desperate attempt to come back. So... Uh, there are many layers we can address this topic. Uh, if we want to focus on the fun in funeral, yes, there are uh, ancient traditions that uh, were not only celebrating uh, death, but they were also mourning the birth because they realized that this world is full of struggle and, and pain and heartbreak and loss. And uh, they knew that they have to continue to maintain the continuity of the tribe. So they had to like procreate, but uh, they were mourning every birth and celebrating every death. Because if we look at it from a shamanic point of view, um, from the vantage point of a shaman, like let's call it out of body or non-physical perspective, it is much more traumatic to be born than it is to die. Okay, we don't, I mean, imagine that. Do you remember being born? No, it's probably like blocked. <laughs> okay, why do you think it's blocked? Because it's a, a trauma, some sort of sort. It's so fucking traumatic, Alex. Because if you would remember, in a even a, a little fraction of the huge trauma of being born, you would not be able to function today at all. You'd be completely like fucking paralyzed. It's an extremely traumatic experience being born. Like you come from like, uh, you know, a. Uh, pure potential, pure energy, uh, limitlessness, uh, and all of a sudden you find yourself like in this tiny little hopeless body and you need to like to eat and to shit and to pee and you don't even know how to fucking walk and you have all these needs and, and no no wonder babies are crying all the time. It's, it's like, it's horrible. It's traumatic. And we don't remember uh, our birds for good reason because... This sort of trauma, even like the best shamans cannot really repair it. And that's why it's blocked from memory. It's a, it's a mechanism of survival, this blocking of our birth memory. Uh, death, on the other hand, is a release. Uh, we are released from the bounds and constriction of the physical body and from the limitations from, you know, stuff like uh, gravity, which means, uh, I mean, if you believe in gravity, that is because it's also a mindfuck religion like everything else, but you are freed from all these constraints and you kind of graduate in, in a manner of speaking to a more uh, free state of movement and of uh, expression. Uh, and I just want to make it clear that I do not, uh, I'm not promoting suicide here. Yeah, I think it's a stupid idea and uh, all the things that you, you're not solving and not dealing with in this physical body are not going to be magically resolved uh, if you die. I mean, this shit you're carrying around is going to come with you wherever you go. Physical body or not, you know, everywhere you go, everywhere you go, you always take the weather with you. So even if you kill yourself, don't do it, okay? Do not kill yourself. It doesn't solve anything. All the shit you've accumulated will follow you 
because it is not located in the physical body. So yeah, maybe you will be free of some physical pain, but the, the real baggage that you've accumulated, uh, you're supposed to get rid of it, you know, in the living years. Because whatever you haven't cleared in this life, you're going to have to come back again, according to some teachings, and, uh, and you know, figure that shit out. A few years ago, I, I went to a water park, and I, there was this huge, like, water slide that was all in a tunnel, and I was sitting on, like, a, a, a car wheel, or not the wheel, but uh, what do you call it, the balloon kind of thing, and uh, going through this tunnel in the water, and it was quite narrow, and I did get some sort of PTSD in that tunnel because I, I don't know if it was from my birth experience, but I, I, I remember because uh, I'm not normally that claustrophobic, but in that tunnel, I, I really didn't enjoy it. It, it caught me by surprise, actually. And how did you react? I kept going on the slides that were not in a tunnel. <laughs> and how does that put the fun back in funeral? Uh, no, th- that's about birth. <laughs> oh, okay. So let's put the, the the morning back into birth and the fun back in funeral. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually I I I watched because uh, I could sleep, so I watched the film and I just happened to watch the film Three Hundred. And at the end of the film, uh, when they all die, uh, one of the soldiers die next to the king, and he goes like, "It's an honor to die by your side." And then the king says, it's an honor to have lived by yours. And I think this should be the fun in the funeral. It should be a celebration of the life. This, listen, Alex, this quote just gave me goosebumps. Because this is what makes a king different. A real king, different from the people. Okay? Because the, the king has the, the additional wisdom to understand uh, that we're celebrating a life that is lived. He gave the right wise reply. I mean, for the soldier, is it's 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 a sense of glory to die by the side of a king, but if the king, even in death, is is contemplating a life well lived in, in the company of people who have been brave and loyal and 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 honorable. Okay, and this is a fucking rarity. We don't have such royalty today. We don't have such loyalty today. We don't have such friendships today. Uh, or maybe if we do, they're like very few and far between or hidden from sight. Because look at the world today, you don't have this kind of honor and loyalty. And certainly not this kind of royalty. Royalty is like maybe a long lost concept, if it ever existed, as it should be. You could say that true royalty is loyalty. Uh, yes, and uh, and a true king or a true royal uh, will not see himself or herself separate from the people and separate from the land. I mean, when a when a proper king, when a loyal king or royal says that I am the people and I am the land, this is not a narcissistic statement. This is not a megalomaniac statement. It is quite the opposite. Uh, when a royal says that and means it, it means that he he is nothing. Okay, he's a servant. He is the land. I mean, if the land land suffers. He suffers. If the people suffer, he suffers. Okay? This is the kind of royalty that does not exist today. Today, royalty is about, you know, regulations and control and amassing wealth and control. But maybe the ancient ancient royals, if they ever existed, 
that's what they were, and if they weren't, that's what they should have been about. To identify, to, to give up their identity completely, to be like servants of the people all the way. And the benefits that they get, they should be only there to make their hard mission a little bit more bearable. But to be a royal, there's the old saying, heavy is the head who bears the crown. And uh, for a proper royal, for a proper king, uh, this is, I find it at least to be very correct. Because it is a, a great responsibility and you don't exist anymore. And a proper king becomes the office. And his own persona is no longer relevant. Do you want to support this podcast? Yeah! Go to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. If you become a patron, you'll be able to hear these episodes before everyone else, as well as access exclusive content. Join us at the round table of the Divine Mystery. The theme song for the strategy video game Civilization 6 that I must admit I have put a few hours into is called The Dream of Flight by composer Christopher Tin. So let's close this episode with a bang. Freedom is in the mind.